Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we'll talk about a seafood QSR Plus that's eyeing expansion. We'll talk about Sonic's lukewarm conference call regarding finances. And we'll also talk about Muscle Maker Grill potentially seeking to expand through a part IPO. But first this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business like financial freedom, being your own boss having more control of your time, but maybe you're just not sure where to start. All of this could potentially be yours, though, if you choose to open a UPS store franchise. That's right. It certainly can be yours, and UPS brings aboard 35 years of franchising experience, and they were just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store brings in that stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all of the training and marketing support you will ever need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. Stores are available in both large and small markets across the United States, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner is now. Visit the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's the UPSStoreFranchising.com slash focus. Well, the lead here on the Food Focus podcast today is a business that we've talked about often on this podcast. In fact, they were one of the food-related businesses that made our bottom five performers of 2016. That's Ruby Tuesday. They appear to be going private and no, not because of a bankruptcy. That's probably what we would have guessed had you told us they were going private, but rather this is a buyout offer at hand from private equity firm NRD Capital. Let's talk a little bit about the deal background. You know, Ruby Tuesday, as we mentioned, one of the most struggling food-related businesses, 2016, 2017. Man, it's treated the legacy FSR even worse. Shares have declined 38% year-to-date up until the news breaking here with NRD Capital. And it seems as though this firm has a long way to go to turn Ruby Tuesday around. Revenue has declined for the operator not only because of closing locations that we've talked about over the last couple of years, but also same-store sales falling. And this year, like you said, really seen a market cap decline because of those falling same-store sales. One reason is we were really patient. Shareholders were actually waiting to see if the salad bar or other menu innovations were going to be working, but that has not seemed to be the case. There have been rumors of the company executives seeking strategic alternatives with the company, but not that many. So a lot of people were wondering, where is this company going to go? Obviously, a lot of rumors about potential bankruptcy in 2018. And while there have been some legacy FSRs saved in the recent past, namely the operator of Fox and Hound and also the operator for Joe's Crab Shack, we will actually be looking to see why this company was bought up and if there's value to be extracted from the company. NRD Capital will acquire the casual dining chain for around $2.40 per share in cash and assume or retire all of its debt obligations for a total enterprise value of about $335 million. And this is something we talk about oftentimes. This is something we talked about with those other FSRs that have gone through bankruptcy. A lot of times the company, whether or not they can renegotiate debt, they still have to take on some debt burden. And that looks to be the case here. 
with Ruby Tuesday. And if you look at the simple math, it tells us that $2.40 per share, that debt load was in the ballpark of $189 million. And there is a timeline with this deal as both companies are looking to close within the first few months of 2018. No strict timeline, however, but it's most assuredly going to go through given all the audits come back as okay. And again, we compare these to previous transactions, especially in the recent past. And you look through the finances of this company and compare it to Landry's Incorporated, who actually won the bankruptcy court auction two months ago for Ignite Restaurant Groups, Joe's Crab Shack, and Brick House Tavern. That company actually had a winning bid of $55 million for about 75 locations in total at Joe's Crab Shack and 23 at Brick House Taverns. An average unit volume there around $3 million as of 2015. Last Call Guarantor LLC, the once owner of sports bar chains Fox and Hound and Champs, sold the chain for $26.8 million to Fun Eat and Drinks LLC. Last Call operated 37 of those Fox and Hound restaurants, 14 Champs, and four Bailey's locations, so they had 55 restaurants in total. They spent around $80.4 million in operational costs and the debt obligations, which means the company spent around $107 million in total. We couldn't find an average unit volume for that restaurant, but you can see there they paid around $1.95 million per restaurant. Now, I say all of that. All of that is relevant financially because... As of the end of March, Ruby Tuesday had 613 locations left open after closing almost 100 in the last prior year. Average unit volume there at Ruby Tuesday was around 1.64 million. So it's not all apples to apples here, but per location, it looks like NRD Capital would be spending around $55 million per location. And if you compare that to the last two acquisitions that I mentioned, it could be a steal if NRD Capital is actually looking for a successful turnaround or a spinoff operation. When you talk about that average unit volume at Ruby Tuesday, that's taken a little bit of a hit, and NRD Capital knows this. I think they think they're getting a pretty decent deal here for the chain, but more importantly for the name of the chain, were they to eye expansion. And with that, we wanted to look at what NRD could do for a potential turnaround of Ruby Tuesday. Given some of our sources, there's a good chance that there could be some leadership roles that are switched around. That's extremely common in these types of instances not only limited to president and CEO roles, but of course other roles in that top leadership group as well. As several other people have written, Ruby Tuesday has to create more than a value proposition to attract a broader millennial customer base. They tried with that salad bar refresh, but a lot of their newer initiatives have not worked, or at least they haven't stemmed the negative momentum coming from the last year to two years of negative same-store sales. You wonder if potentially NRD Capital will begin to focus on the healthier aspect and make it a health play rather than a value play to lure in some of those millennial customers that are running from a lot of these FSRs. We mentioned Applebee's on the show a couple of months ago for citing millennials for their drop. Brinker International, along those same lines, has cited millennials in the past, not in their most recent earnings call, but in the distant past is one of the reasons for declining sales. 
Customer retention also hasn't been where it needs to be for Ruby Tuesday, and that's why they have to reinvent themselves. And reinvention is hard. And it's going to take further investment from NRD Capital as Ruby Tuesday not complete with their own capital investments to this point. But it'll also take investment in terms of advertising and PR, getting out a fresher message to its consumers, while also not alienating the generation who have stayed on with the chain through the recent difficulties. Now, shares after this announcement initially popped over 20% to over the $2.40 mark at one point. But they leveled off Tuesday at a $0.02 deal discount or $2.38 per share. Of course, that $0.02 is likely hedge room based on whether or not this deal will go through. But at this point, there aren't any antitrust concerns and there aren't any surface concerns really other than potentially Ruby Tuesday shareholders potentially nixing the deal. But if you're a Ruby Tuesday shareholder, you don't see a big reason to believe in the current leadership group, to believe in the current strategy. And I could see shareholders overwhelmingly voting for this takeover. Well, we move on to our sole earnings report for this episode of the Food Focus podcast. Sonic has reported their fiscal fourth quarter results, and there are some ominous signs for the company despite beating estimates last quarter. Here we see the first signs of companies blaming severe weather and hurricanes for lacking sales, and we'll get into this a little bit later, or at least Trent will. A bit contrary to some retailers' bullish third and fourth quarter estimates in affected areas of the country. First, we dig into the financials as the company release officially came out on Monday of this week. We should preface with the fact that Sonic, like Wendy's, has continued to aggressively refranchise corporate-owned locations. This will affect both revenue and profit for the fourth quarter, as it has for the last year or two, but should short margins longer term. And we'll get into those details in a bit, but first... Topline revenue fell around 23.8% to $123.6 million from around $162 million in the prior year's quarter. This was a $2.4 million miss per the analyst side of things. And again, analysts knew about the refranchising effort. So this miss is a legitimate miss on that top line. Net income came in around $20.8 million or around 50 cents per share from around $25.4 million in the prior year or around $0.53 cents per share, also representing double-digit declines, but slightly better than the revenue drop. This drop was around 18% versus that 23% in revenue. And you see on an adjusted basis, they beat earnings per share figures brought forth by analysts by around $0.02, cents, so that's a positive. Share buybacks helped in this metric. They are almost completely done with share buybacks. They bought back around 13.8% of the company, or at least outstanding shares over the prior year's period. And you look at same-store sales, something that has been only slightly positive in the recent past, actually dropped to the negative territory in this most recent quarter. By 3.3% did they fall, declined more at company-owned locations, which actually tells us that they are refranchising, and that strategy is probably the correct route for the company. Franchisees seem to be taking more personal ownership of the brand. If we are being exact here, company-owned Sonics were actually 50% lower than franchisee-owned stores on a same-store sales basis. Regardless, the overall same-store sales figure was talked about by their CEO, Cliff Hudson, as being, and I quote, clearly below expectations, end quote. We can see that the company, despite increased visibility through promotional activity in the recent months and limited time offerings, is blaming some happenings outside of their circle of control. And I think here, promotional activity or the lack of their promotional activity and their Transformers promotion taking off certainly hurt same-store sales. 
But one of the interesting things is they brought up multiple times in this conference call the effects from Hurricane Harvey. So we wanted to look a little bit closer at these supposed effects from Hurricane Harvey. To jog listeners' memory, Harvey hit from August 25th to September 3rd in the Gulf Coast in Texas, primarily, although had impacts as far away as Louisiana and Alabama. This quarter for Sonic went from June 1st to August 31st. This quarter we're discussing for Sonic Drive-In. So only about 6.5% of the quarter saw impacts from the hurricane, no matter how you slice it. Now, Sonic would say that maybe people were moving away prior to the hurricane hitting, but we estimate about 6.5% of the quarter saw impacts from Harvey. Based on our individual counts, Sonic has about 40 locations directly in the Houston metro. Wanted to be charitable here. Let's assume 100 in the hurricane path. Sonic has 3,557 locations overall. So locations directly in the hurricane path make up about 2.8% of Sonic's overall locations. Assuming all 100 locations had no sales whatsoever during these six days, that's probably not the case, but we're going with the worst case scenario here. And also assuming that those area locations had the same average volume as other U.S. locations, that hurricane would have an overall same-store sales impact over last year of 0.182%. And again, that's a charitably high estimate. Their overall same-store sales were down 3.3%, meaning the hurricane contributed to just around 5% of their same-store sales loss. Oh, and their expected same-store sales for this quarter, at least based on the guidance they gave in their last earnings release, negative 1.5%. So Harvey here was a very, very small component of this miss, about 10% of the impact, in fact. And our take is that the hurricane in this circumstance is being used as somewhat of a red herring to disguise their summer promotional struggles and also their concept stagnation. When you look at Sonic on the macro level, their research and development has fallen off considerably in the last two years. This was something that drew sales growth in in the earlier part of this decade. They've had few real innovations of late, and it's very likely that companies who struggle to meet expectations over the next few earnings calls will certainly use the incidents of severe weather here as a target for external attribution to buy them another quarter or two when realistically the problems lie within. And we see this all the time. It's an error of attribution. Humans do the same thing, but companies certainly do it in earnings calls. Anytime same store sales fall by more than expected or don't meet expectations, it's always external attributions that are laid upon the table of analysts. In this case, we get hurricanes and that type of thing. Oftentimes we'll hear about weather being too warm, too cold, too perfect in some circumstances. We'll hear about various other things, various other industry headwinds. But when same store sales metrics are beaten, oftentimes companies will say, hey, we're executing really well. We executed on all of our plans and there are no external attributions there. So keep in mind this error of attribution. It's very fundamental to human behavior, but also company behavior. And I think we're seeing some of that from Sonic. To finish Sonic's fourth quarter earnings report, we will be highlighting what we thought were a few valid takeaways from the earnings call transcript. For 2018, CEO Cliff Hudson sees the company attaining 78 new gross openings and around 40 to 50 remodels. Again, this is for 2018. They've already accomplished quite a bit in 2017 and 2016 as far as remodels. Those very remodels can actually be quite intensive. This is why he probably highlighted them throughout the middle of his speech on the earnings call transcript. And you could see 
A recent Sonic that I drove by was actually bulldozed and rebuilt with a location that now faces a different direction. So these can actually be very intensive from not only the construction standpoint, but obviously the amount of capital needed to accomplish these. They see two to 3% net unit growth on an annualized basis. This is more or less in line with what executives had discussed during their investor day presentation that both Trent and I highlighted throughout the earlier parts of the year. In order to really attain this overarching growth and make it sustainable, management wants to save and have a more differentiated product offering. They discussed the idea, and rightly so, that limited time offerings that only use current product mix but in a bundled value setting do not necessarily drive customer loyalty, but rather one and done customer relationships. They said some of the deals that they had earlier during the summer months where they were already bundling items that weren't differentiators for the company were really just creating these transactions where people would get in and get out and not really create a mindset to where those customers wanted to come back into a Sonic. They will actually look to refocus that with more marketing on new items that Sonic has and not the ones that are constantly highlighted by their biggest competitors. They can actually differentiate within core products as well, which is something that their CEO highlighted, which we have recently seen with both burgers and shakes. Longer term, the company will have to stay committed with all of these strategies they mentioned during this recent call in order to reach their average unit volume goal of around $1.5 million by 2020. You see those same store sales dropping this quarter, certainly not helping that overarching goal. Shares dropped in after hours trading on Monday, but then picked up around 6% in trading on Tuesday. They've since leveled off to around $25.60 per share and are basically even year to date given a dollar or two. We talked about it at the top of the show, but you know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being able to be your own boss, also having control of your time to the extent that maybe you can start a podcast, but maybe you're just not sure where to start. Well, as we mentioned, a lot of this can come potentially with opening a UPS store franchise. I mentioned it at the top, but they bring in 35 years of franchising experience, and that's extremely important. We just talked about Sonic refranchising, and they're looking for legacy operators that have a lot of experience. They want you, too, to have that experience within the UPS store, and they bring forth stability, the support and reputation of their world-renowned brand, and a proven business model that will help you make the decisions that are right for your business. Stores are available in both large and small markets across the country, and the time is now to find the location that's just right for you. Plus, financing is available for those who qualify and there's special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner could be now. Visit theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's theupsstorefranchising.com slash focus. While little is hurt from Long John Silver's, Captain D's Seafood is in the midst of an aggressive growth plan, especially in the American Southeast. We'll provide a few different regions here with Central Florida being the company's current main target. But this is also an excuse to talk about a chain we don't discuss much on the podcast. As we go into Captain D's and their overarching business model, you can see that they were actually started in Donaldson, Tennessee in 1969. They had 15 locations within four years of inception. Captain D's has now over 500 locations, 517 to be exact, in the United States. Most of these are in the southeastern parts of the United States, but they'd like to see greater penetration in the deeper southeast. Captain D's is a seafood restaurant, as the name would indicate, with much of the same menu portfolio as Long John Silver's. 
They have recently attempted a re-imaging, wherein an argument could be made that they are now a QSR+. Plus, As Trent alluded to at the very top of this podcast, the re-imaging includes additional public materials about their seafood sources and a new store design that de-emphasizes the ship look with kitsch on the walls that older locations had and emphasizes bright open spaces with shiplap. Media pushes about their wild-caught Alaskan Pollock have been notable in new markets, as are pushes about their sustainability. Obviously, sustainability is something that a lot of grocers and QSRs have been highlighting in the recent past, particularly with seafood. A lot of people don't like to farm fish, and they are trying to highlight the fact that they are providing a lot of wild-caught products to their customer base. They claim they are able to track every fillet back to the boat they are caught on. And you look, they are emphasizing their low-calorie options as well. So with additional grilled menu items and more notes about steamed vegetables, their differentiation happens to lie more within their health-centric food and their new look. Their grilled menu is now 10% of sales, and the company themselves noted that they've done no marketing pushes as of yet towards this grilled line. Sales of their grilled line have doubled in the last 18 months. Many of their new menu items seem to take direct aim at Red Lobster with blackened tilapia and salmon served over rice and steamed broccoli. Although a private company, they do release some financial data, thanks to them, on their franchising website. Average unit volumes are just over $1 million. However, for new stores open to the last two years, average unit volume is $1.4 million. So those new stores really are hitting the mark in terms of driving that revenue and traffic showing that the redesigned and new market push is paying off on the whole. Yeah, as you mentioned, six straight years of annual average unit volume growth through 2016, and that's led to this bullish franchise push that seemed to have its roots in earlier this year, but it really amped up when they announced in June their partnership with a development firm. And in fact, coming out of that partnership at the time, Phil Greifield, their CEO, said he saw room for thousands of Captain D's restaurants in the United States, which is notable considering, as Leighton mentioned, they have just over 500 right now. But this partnership with the development firm, its American Development Partners, has parlayed itself into a new robust franchise information site, which is one of the larger ones that Leighton and I have seen when doing research for food companies that do franchise. And again, that was unveiled recently. Franchise costs for Captain D's do run a little bit high. Startup costs of around $780,000 to over $1 million was noted in their franchisee information. They also require franchisees have a net worth of $1 million and liquid assets of $350,000. They aren't franchised exclusively, though. A lot of their locations are corporate-owned. Greifeld said that it's very key to keep some of those locations corporate-owned to show franchisees that the company is willing to invest in their own model as well, not just relying on franchisees in this circumstance to invest. Now, I think a valid question exists here. Why does Captain D's see such a bullish opportunity here as the QSR Plus space becomes increasingly crowded with chicken restaurants in particular in their region, which happens to be most of the southeastern United States? Well, their answer, and I found this interesting, lies mostly in flat seafood sales data. This seems counterintuitive. You wouldn't want to expand, certainly, one would think, if sales in your particular area of expertise were flat over the last several years. But they're trying to get out in front of what they see as a potentially developing trend. According to the National Marine Fisheries Service, 
Growth in seafood consumption has been negligible in the last several years, despite an increased awareness of fish as a healthy source of protein. But Captain Dees says their internal data shows that the lack of increase in seafood consumption has to do with access and not a distaste for seafood or a dislike of seafood. In fact, in regions where they've opened and there isn't a pre-existing seafood QSR or fast casual, they've found that that region's population's overall seafood consumption rises after they open a store. So really, Captain D's is making the argument that if people had access to seafood like they have access to hamburgers or chicken, the sales would be just as robust for the seafood category as it would be for the others. Their argument is that people want seafood, but they want easier access to it rather than going to a grocer and cooking it themselves, buying it frozen or something like that, or spending $20 a plate at Red Lobster. And as Leighton mentioned, some of their new grilled menu seems to take direct aim at Red Lobster, offering basically the same products as Red Lobster, though without the experience, you could make the argument for about half the cost or even less than half the cost in certain circumstances. Let's talk specifically about the opportunity they see in Central Florida. The Orlando Business Journal mentioned recently of Captain D's seeing the Orlando market as one ripe for $20 million in capital investments. Doing the math, that turns out to about 22 to 25 franchisees as they seek to expand there. One interesting note, they're seeking investors here who actually have other restaurants. There's two main benefits to this for Captain D's. One is restaurant operation experience, and the other is experience in that Orlando region. And I found this interesting because this stands kind of opposite of what A&W's model is. A&W, a similar-sized restaurant, they're trying to kind of hedge themselves in there as that QS plus with some of their ingredients with of course their root beer they emphasize a single location owner but captain d's quite the opposite in this circumstance in fact they said on one of their press releases that if a franchisee already operates restaurants in a particular area captain d's won't be cannibalizing those other locations so they're trying to bring in franchisees that already have operations in the orlando area recently they opened nine new restaurants in tampa bay in early summer those have already been a success according to the company thus the reason for more of a push in orlando and we talked already about how well in terms of average unit volumes their new stores opened over the last two years are doing the company opened restaurants last week in louisiana and tennessee both areas that have already seen robust recent development from the company recently they signed development agreements to expand into san antonio with five locations in 2018 and 2019 also four locations in Mobile, Alabama in the same time frame. So we already see that this is a company that's got their eyes on expansion, but kind of the story here, they're wanting to expand into the Orlando area, and more than that, they're seeking partnerships more and more as the year progresses to sign these development agreements. They want to over double in size over the next several years. That's one of the reasons why they signed this development agreement and one of the reasons why they're bullish on their long-term prospects. Well, we end this week's podcast with a fast casual restaurant we have actually never talked about. And to be honest, Trent, I've never heard about. Muscle Maker Grill has 51 locations and they're looking to do what is being labeled a mini IPO to help fund continuing operations and supply their growth strategy. 
The Houston-based chain first opened its doors in 1995 with a concept arguably ahead of its time, yet profitability has waned for the company. This is a company that we have never talked about before, and namely because of its size and the fact that it is not a publicly traded company. So, like with Sonic, we cover earnings reports, and we look at bigger companies that are making larger, relevant transitions throughout the FSR and QSR industry. The company appeals, or at least tries to appeal, to a health-conscious, fitness-oriented customer. Given that their target customer is in a niche market, it seems as though they have cornered into mediocrity because they've really maxed out their potential given the fitness industry. However, you could see this particular niche as having grown in the recent past. Obviously, social media has done well to boost the fitness industry, so it is a little interesting to me and Trent as to why Muscle Maker Grill hasn't been more profitable or at least hasn't grown more in the recent years. You see a lot of fitness celebrities, quote unquote, on social media, Instagram, Snapchat, those types of things, really promoting healthy eating and a fitness lifestyle. And before we get into the deals of this latest round of funding, let's dive into the current menus that do circulate around a healthy lifestyle. Just taking one glance at the menu, you can see that one of the issues may be that they have too many items to choose from. They have starters, which are basically typical full-service restaurant sides. They also have a section for salads, sandwiches, and the sandwiches includes one conventional burger and one chicken sandwich. But if you go a little bit further down, it doesn't seem too daunting yet, but if you go a little bit further down on their official website, you can see that they have a ton that they're going to have to operate on the back half of the restaurant. 12 different wraps, three different pasta dishes, seven different rice bowls that are akin to what Chipotle offers, six different flatbreads, 16 different sides, and no, those do not encompass the starters that I mentioned, eight smoothies, and 14 shakes with nine option add-ins such as energy boosters, fat burners, and protein. And if you look at their website, they say that they have great food with your health in mind, Muscle Maker Grill's menu features items with grass-fed steak and all-natural chicken, as well as options that satisfy an array of dietary preferences from vegetarians to the low-carb consumer and guests following a gluten-free diet. And no, not all of their products are gluten-free. However, the company is focused on different segments of the fitness and health population. The company does not seem to mention, however, organic or non-GMO ingredients. And to me, that is a little bit of a problem because, yes, they started in 1995, but at least they could have evolved to be a little bit more transparent as far as ingredients are concerned. You see Chipotle doing that with non-GMO everything, really going on that promotional push with in-store signage. I do not see anything like that with this franchise here. Now, Muscle Maker Grill also has meal kits for those who don't want to drive to the actual physical locations. They come in microwavable containers and can be delivered to home or work. So they do have that nice little wrinkle in at a time where a lot of FSRs, QSRs, fast casuals are talking about delivery services. Now, speaking of the locations, they're actually pretty well spread out throughout the contiguous 48 states. They've tried to take advantage of larger markets in 12 states, larger cities along the East Coast, but also Houston, where they're from, Kansas City, Omaha, and seven locations in Southern California. Now let's get back to the IPO. Leighton did a great job at running down the menu. Under Regulation A-plus funding rounds, companies can now get money from smaller investors and can advertise their IPO to its customers. Some institutional investors may not be attracted to such low market cap companies. Also, a lot of institutional investors more attracted towards companies already offering a dividend. So therefore, this funding 
can raise money by allowing them the opportunity for diverse markets here, mostly their customers. This is basically a financing tool that would be similar to a Series A round for a startup. We have to ask, why wouldn't they be able to get institutional investors on board? Well, it's starting to look bad for the company in terms of their cash flow statement. The company reported a net loss of $4.2 million last year and negative operating cash flow of $2.1 million, an accumulated deficit also of $3.9 million. These finances coming to light now that they are looking for that primary round of funding. Now, keep that number in mind. Total revenues this year were a little less than $5 million. That does represent a 60% increase year over year. But in this case, all of that growth in terms of locations, in terms of top line revenue, doesn't matter if the company is hemorrhaging even more cash. You look at that total revenues of $5 million and a net loss of $4.2 million. That's what we call unsustainable growth. Oftentimes, you see companies in a growth stage that grow quicker than they can possibly sustain. And this is something where Shake Shack's actually erred on the opposite side of this. They've grown more slowly than what the company can actually sustain. But if you're growing by leaps and bounds in this manner, you should have an average unit volume of much higher than what this restaurant has, which you're looking at an average unit volume of $150,000 to $200,000 per year. That's not very good if you're looking for some of this IPO funding or part IPO funding. Growth for the company has come by the way of franchising. In fact, 77% of its locations are franchised out. So of course, that alters the average unit volume number just a bit upward to the number I just gave you. If you just did the straight math on $5 million of revenue, that number would come out to about $100,000, but the average unit volume actually a little bit less than that. However, this overall poor financial showing has prompted the company itself to give a very apparent warning to, to potential investors about the company's viability. In the investor documents, if you look into them, the company says there is substantial doubt about its ability to operate going forward. This is a going concern warning, as we often refer to it, and this is more typical of a company like Sears, who if you follow the Retail Focus podcast, you'll recall that they issued a going concern warning and regarding substantial doubt earlier this year. But Sears has endured almost a decade of horrible sales metrics, and here you have a company seeking kind of a partial IPO. The company sent in its filing, and I quote, we anticipate that we will continue to report losses and negative cash flow. As a result of these net losses and cash flow deficits, the company's auditors indicated there is substantial doubt about our ability to continue as a going concern. So if you're wondering why they wouldn't get money from institutional investors, it's not very often institutional investors throw money at a sinking ship. They might short a sinking ship, but they won't throw money at a sinking ship. The company is promoting investment through its portal where there is a visible $450 minimum to buy in. The company has also posted a $61.6 million pre-money valuation. This is a 12 times multiple on last year's revenue, which is fairly steep when you're talking about a multiple on revenue. That's not a multiple on earnings as their price to earnings ratio in this circumstance would be very well into the negatives. The company is hoping to raise just shy of $20 million on this round of funding, doing so apparently $450 at a time. 
with that $20 million, you really have to ask yourself or maybe ask the company, what are they going to do with that money? The company says it wants to expand and continue on with eight different income streams. If you look at those income streams, again, from their website, we extrapolate. Muscle Maker Grill executes, they say, on those eight streams through dine-in, takeout, delivery, catering, meal plans, as Trent mentioned, retail in a very small way, grab-and-go kiosk, and food trucks. It seems like a lot of redundancy here in our opinion. Not a lot of retailers or FSRs break out the different ways they have revenue coming in. They look at the top line revenue and they just say, we want to meet these long-term goals by whichever means possible. On the company's 174-page Regulation 1A filing, they discuss the openness to international expansion, particularly in the UAE and in Kuwait. They want to continue to aggressively franchise, as Trent mentioned, 77, around 77.8% of their store base is franchised out. And they hope to bring about unit growth annually between 30 and 50%. They tout their customer loyalty, but it may be hard to convince potential franchisees to come aboard if they see that base outside of their target market. Given their track record, they really see a base that's probably not growing too terribly much. And like I had said before, in metropolitan markets, it's going to be very tough. You want to go outside of those bigger L.A., New York, Florida markets. Well, going to expand and trying to convince other smaller franchisees that you're going to be successful, sustainable in a long term way. It's going to be very difficult in smaller markets because if you can't compete in larger markets where People are health conscious. They're walking around on the beach all the time. They're going to struggle in the Midwest. That said, all things equal and potential growth opportunities aside, the company will at least have a few years of that additional capital to run through if they were to raise all of that $20 million through this mini IPO. We take the stand that some of those popular Shark Tank investors often take to incoming entrepreneurs in the Shark Tank. We will be a customer if they come to our market, but probably not an investor at that $450 minimum and that $62 million pre-money valuation. The concept is pretty unique for a number of reasons, and we would personally like to see them succeed because of the depth of their menu and focus on quality. However, we talked about unsustainability. We could probably see a benefit if the company and their executives decide to be a little bit more transparent, like I said, on the ingredient front, but also simplifying their menu so that first-time customers do not have paralysis by analysis. Their menu is extensive. And then if you run down the ingredients of that menu, it gets even more complicated. What's gluten-free? What's not gluten-free? So those first-time customers, again, those are the ones that you want to turn into loyal customers over time. And obviously, 85% of profits long-term are from loyal core customers. And so that's really what the company is going to have to promote. And that is what the company is wanting to sell to their future franchisees. I hope all the best for them. And I am curious the next time I travel to one of those big markets to try their menu out. Well, we've reached the final segment on the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about a thing from the world of food that's new that we tried over the last week. And this time, I'll begin, you know, it's interesting, Leighton and I each tried the same thing, but different flavors of the same thing. We went for that dairy-free Halo Top ice cream that we discussed a few weeks ago on the podcast. Now, I tried the dairy-free sea salt caramel version of the Halo Top ice cream. Again, the basis is coconut milk here. 
I picked the sea salt caramel because I tend to like sweet and salty together in a dessert. I don't like desserts that are overwhelmingly sweet. This ice cream is pretty good for a dairy-free ice cream overall. It is a little bit fibrous in comparison to other dairy-free ice creams, which is to say it's kind of like the Chipotle queso, but I didn't altogether mind that. I think it added to the mouthfeel. It was certainly airier than most ice cream, even dairy-free ice cream. And honestly, I think the cashew milk ice cream from So Delicious is probably my favorite dairy-free ice cream still, but the sea salt caramel is a decent version from Halo Top, and considering the fact that they distribute nearly everywhere, it'll be easy to find. I think it's going to be a good call for people wanting a dairy-free ice cream, and I think it does finish certainly in the top, you know, 10 maybe of dairy-free ice creams that I've tried, and I've tried a great many. So I do recommend it in all. might not be my favorite, but it's a good go-to given the circumstances and given the situation. Well, if we have any remaining listeners for this section of the podcast, I will say that Trent and I did not collude for this segment. We honestly tried the ice cream separate. We talked about it a little bit afterwards. It was uh, strictly a coincidence, but if you look through those dairy-free offerings, not only did that catch my attention when Trent had talked about it a few weeks ago, but these ice creams are actually vegan and soy-free, most of them. And so you look at the different variations. They have a very broad portfolio here. What I tried was actually the chocolate-covered banana flavor. And to be honest with you, this hit it on the mark. I will probably not ever be eating, unless I have to or I'm forced to, a dairy-based ice cream ever again. This Halo Top chocolate-covered banana ice cream, 320 calories per pint, which is pretty much the average for them. And you see that it only has 4 grams of fat, 70 calories per serving, although I probably ate three times that serving because of the intensity of the flavor that it brought forth. Only 5% of your daily value of sodium, and the total carbohydrates came in at around 13 grams, so not a lot of energy gained there. But the ice cream does pack a punch in terms of protein as well, around 3 grams for an average serving. And this is an ice cream that really, I hope, is going to take off shelf space. As mentioned on the most recent episode of the Shark Tank, in the freezer and cooler section is finite. If you bring in a new item, that means that an item has to usually go out. And if you look at the amount of SKUs that they have, I am very curious to see what makes it and what doesn't for Halo Top, because obviously they do have the regular chocolate flavor, they have the vanilla flavor, but are these other flavors, like the one I tried, going to make it into the average grocery store, considering that that shelf space is so valuable? Obviously, Shelf space in those areas, smaller, therefore the product offerings too have to be in a smaller quantity. I am curious to see how the company goes forward and if there are any winners or losers as time goes on with these different products. And I should mention, it took a while to find that sea salt caramel, but I finally got it done, and part of that is because of that shelf space conundrum there. Well, for Late Dime Trent, this does it for the Food Focus podcast. Coming up on the Retail Focus podcast this week, we'll talk about teenage retail tendencies. We'll also talk about holograms. Be sure and stay tuned for that. That'll hit Friday of this week. Again, for Late Dime Trent, this does it for the Food Focus. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. 
Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 